The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 34, 1 through 16, and 27 through 35. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the, mount, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourse- yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, and break their pillars, and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, He put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come together and worship you, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through the word incarnate in your son. 
that we know what you're like. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to have suspicions that you clearly tell us who you are and what you're like. And so I'm thankful this morning as we come to to your word to get a glimpse of that. And I know that as we come to the word, we'll also catch a glimpse of ourselves. And it's not always fun to see how we really are. Um, And so I'm praying this morning that you would use my words to cut like a surgeon as he's precise and and skilled and is cutting and not like a barbarian, um, but that we would be cut so that we can be stitched up and healed through, through your word and through the grace of your spirit. So I'm praying this morning that your spirit accompanies me. I, I want to pray what Moses pray, prayed last week, that, that if you're not with us here this morning, we don't want to go forward. And so we ask that your spirit would accompany us as I speak um, truth from your word. And as, as you prepare our hearts to receive your word, would you help us to store that as treasure? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and we pray this in his name, amen. Well, if you can believe it or not, if you've been with us since we've planted Sacred City, so we're actually, this is kind of cool, we're like almost, not quite, just right at the six-month mark. We've been doing this for almost six months, that's crazy. Um, But we started our sermon series through the book of Exodus um, far before that, when we were, most of us were still at the Davenport Church, Um, and we are finally getting close to the end. We've got about after this week, I think two more weeks left in the book of Exodus, and as we get closer to the end, we actually come to the apex of the story, all right? The high point of the story is yet to come. And so if you haven't been with us, um, there's a couple that you can go back and listen on, on iTunes or on our website and catch up with previous sermons, but I just want to give you real quick, bring you up to speed with what has been the big picture, what's been going on through the book of Exodus so far. Now, when we start the book of Exodus, we come and we see God's people trapped in Egyptian slavery. They've been there for 400 years. All right, so in the beginning of the story, we see God hear the cries of his people. He moves toward them, and he works to redeem them and rescue them from the captivity of the Egyptians. And as God is doing this, we see incredible wonders. We see the plagues. We see him split the Red Sea. He brings his people uh, across the Red Sea and into this new new free land. And really what God has promised for his people in delivering them is that he would bring them to this promised land, this land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the, the land that God's people have been waiting for all their lives, really. But before God takes his people to that place, he leads them through the wilderness. And and really, what we don't know yet is how long this is actually going to be. In real time, as we're tracking with the story of the Exodus, we don't know that they're going to be in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, but that's how long God leads them through the wilderness. And in this time of the wilderness, really what God is trying to do, he's trying to deprogram of their mentality and their heart mindset of when they were slaves in Egypt and reprogram what it means to live with God as their king and their ruler rather than a pharaoh. And as we go through this story of the Exodus, there are, are quite, a, quite a few parallels to the Christian life. In fact, I think that's why this book, for many of us, has been uh, such a powerful book to study, that there's been a lot of places where we can relate to what the Israelites are going through. See, just like God delivered his people from the slavery of Egypt, God has delivered his people from the slavery of sin, Just like God's people were in the wilderness wandering for several years, our lives on earth feel a lot like wandering through the wilderness, that we are actually in between two worlds, that right now we're we're waiting for God's kingdom to come in its fullness, just like Israel was waiting for the promised land to finally be theirs. And because we can see ourselves in the story, we're able to resonate with Israel and their experience. Right? As we wander through life, we can see how God has provided for us step by step, just like he provided water from the rock and manna from heaven for his people. We can see, we can see that same tendency in our own lives that Israel had to wander away from God and his covenant and his ways and his love, that we find ourselves doing the same thing more often than we'd like to admit. And then in Exodus 32, we really see how Israel wandered away from God as they erected the golden calf and they bowed and worshiped that as if that were the God that had delivered them from Egypt. 
And in that act of constructing this idol and worshiping it, they broke this covenant that God had made with them chapters before and where that covenant said that they would devote themselves entirely to God and God would be for them and protect them and give them this inheritance of the promised land. Now, God's people now have broken that covenant. They have sinned against God. They have, they have really the contract, if that's what it were considered, would be ripped up and void And because of this sin that has compelled them into this idolatry, there has been a lot of turmoil in the relationship with God. We saw that last week where God said, well, I can no longer go with you because you are stiff-necked people, that you have given yourselves to idolatry and sin, that if I go with you, I will consume you. And so there are some questions, big questions, that Israel is probably dealing with here. And I feel like these are big questions that we deal with here in this life. See, if you're like me, you have found yourself wondering a few of these things, right? How do I know that God just won't be done with me? See, I, I, I have this tendency to repent of my sin, but then moments, days, hours later, I find myself in the same sin, right? How do I know that God won't just say, you know what, I've forgiven you enough, it's over, it's done, we're over, See, what's to say that I won't use up all of my second chances? Maybe I feel a little bit better about myself. I feel like I'm being a good Christian. But even then, when it feels like maybe we're cool with God, like how do I know that 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 won't change? Like how do I know that God won't change his mind about me? See, these lingering questions have a way of messing with us if we actually listen to them. And, and I feel like it is. These are not questions that we just suppress and push out of the way and ignore. These are questions that we need to dive into. And thankfully, God reveals himself and, and communicates to us about his own character in a way that allows us to do so with confidence and answer these questions. See, in our passage today, God is going to address these fears by giving us a strong foundation for our hope. And what we're going to see is that our security, that our our good standing before God does not rely on our ability to get it right, for our ability to follow through. Rather, we're going to see that the foundation of our hope lies in the character of God. So if you want to open your Bible... We'll be in Exodus 34, start right here with verse one, actually, Exodus 34. If you don't have a Bible, there's one probably at your feet somewhere. You can grab it, pick it up. Um, it's at the beginning of your Bible, if you're not familiar. Um, Exodus 34, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now, Moses isn't clumsy here. If you remember previous weeks, he didn't accidentally break these tablets that God had given him in the first place. Moses had been up on the Mount Sinai with God, enjoying his glory, being in his presence for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the meantime, God is laying out, he's he's inscribing the Ten Commandments on these two stones to give to Moses and take back down to his people. But he's also laying out the blueprints for God's mobile home. See, what God's intentions are to move into the neighborhood of his people and be right in the center of them. And God's giving Moses these plans up on the mountain. And in the meantime, the people down at the camp are wandering away from God. They feel like maybe God has abandoned them and Moses has done away with them too. And so they quickly turn aside from God and turn to this golden calf. And, and in, this, in this incident, God tells Moses to go back down. He's like, you've got to deal with this issue. And Moses goes down and he sees what's happening and he freaks out. He smashes the tablets. He destroys the golden calf and says, hey, you guys need to wake up. This is a call to repentance. Turn away from your sin and turn toward God. And this imagery that we have with Moses coming down and breaking these tablets is is clear imagery of, of what the people have done. They have broken the covenant that God has made with his people. Now, if you go through um, the book of Exodus, you'll see that God's people up to this point have not been put forth in a very positive light, right? These guys are not 
heroes. There have been a couple of good moments, right? Exodus 15, where God has delivered them out through the Red Sea, and they rejoice, and they sing a hymn to, to God. That's a great moment for Israel. It, it shows that they're responding to him rightly. We see in the last chapter how they respond to Moses' call to repentance by most of them repenting. And so we see a little bit of glimmer of hope for these people. But for the most part, they've been portrayed negatively, It begins with this grumbling in the wilderness. Just after God has delivered them from Egypt, they start grumbling. It would be better for us if we were in Egypt. They start resisting Moses' leadership. There's this constant quarreling with one another. These people seem to be finicky. They're not stable. They're inconsistent. And then the whole golden calf thing really shines the light on the sinfulness of their heart where Aaron actually says that their hearts are always set on evil. Now further on in in chapter 34 and verse 9, Moses will continue to identify the people as stiff-necked, that they are full of sin and iniquity. See, there's this, the way that scripture portrays God's people shows their condition, that their hearts are set on evil, but also their bleak future if they are left to their own ways. Because of their unstable hearts, God warns them. He he says in verse 12, he says, take care. Now, whenever God addresses his people like that, take care or beware or watch out, he's giving a warning for his people because he knows the sinful tendency of their heart to drift to one way, which is opposite way of God, and says, hey, keep on my path. Keep your eyes fixed on me. And so he says, watch out. Jump, to, uh, jump down to verse 11 here. Observe what I've commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So he's saying, watch out, because if you, if you go this direction, it's not going to go well for you. There will be a snare for you, something that you will get tripped up on. And here's what he says it is. That, if, that when you go there, you shall tear down their altars and break the pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, because that's their tendency to drift to worshiping other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. What is going on here? This is not, if you just read this, it sounds like God's sort of um, blocking off interracial marriage. That's not what's happening here by any means. What God is doing is he's preserving the faithfulness of his people. He's talking about a purity of heart, that when they go toward these countries and these people, they are worshiping their pagan gods, and to to associate them would naturally mean that you drift into their ways. And so he's saying, do not do that, for I'm a jealous God. I've called you to myself and only to myself. See, what God is saying here is to get in bed with these other people who aren't devoted to God, these Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, this promotes spiritual infidelity. Now, if you remember back to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that's what God wants from his people, that they would be entirely and exclusively devoted to him. God does not want his faithful, his his people to be unfaithful, jumping back and forth between different gods. But Israel, what they have shown us already is how finicky, how easily swayed they are and how quickly they veer from faithfulness and the one true God who has delivered them from Egypt, right? The way that this passage describes them is they're whores spiritually, They are wandering away. They're unfaithful, just as an unfaithful spouse is. When we realize this about the Israelites, when we see what they're like, the condition of their own hearts, the way that they veer away from God if left um, unaddressed, that we can make the same observations about ourselves. See, the same fickleness of Israel can be found in your heart. 
that either you may be resistant to God, that you may be covenant-breaking, commandment-dismissing, or like we sang today, that, are, that we're prone to wander, that we feel this inner pull that our sinful hearts are trying to lead us away from God. Now, for some of us, this manifests itself in the small sins, right? The, the acceptable sins, but sins nonetheless. Grumbling, gossip, quarreling, subtle anger, laziness. And for others of us, maybe we've had a more noticeable expression of our sin. It's more severe. One of my pastor mentors says that we are always five, only five minutes away from complete moral failure, and many of us have been there. And what this means, when we see ourselves in relation to the Israelites, it means that we are much closer to our golden calf incident in our own lives than we, what we care to think, because the nature of our sinful hearts lead us astray. Now, whether the sins express themselves in big ways or in small ways, the root of the matter is unfaithfulness in the heart. See, that there's a part of us inside that refuses to be entirely satisfied with God. Ray Ortland writes on this matter, and he says that spiritual adultery consists in the lingering wish to retain the world's favor, even as one who also wishes to enjoy the benefits of redemption. What he's, what he's saying here is that there are two worlds, right? There's, there's the, the world, the kingdom of the world, of fleshly desires, and there is the kingdom of God, the pursuit of righteousness. And there is this tension between the two where in the redemption of sinners, God has pulled us out of the world of, that's perishing, the world of sin, and brought us into the world of righteousness, the kingdom of God. But here we feel this tension, right, where the kingdom of God has not completely entirely come in its fullness, where we are sort of straddling the fence here. And for a Christian to live as a Christian means that your desires lie within the kingdom of God, that you want righteousness more than what the world has to offer you. So you can't have them both. You cannot have favor with the world and favor with God. You have to choose. James 4.4 calls in the same theme. He he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, we have a decision to make. It's on us. Do we want to be friends with the world? Do we want to buddy up, snuggle up with that, get in bed with the world? Or would we rather enjoy God and the fullness thereof? The reality is, as much as our hearts, like we can confess with our mouth that we want to be here in the kingdom of God, we want to desire those things, but there is still this inner pull within us that says, I, I, there's something about that that's still enticing to me. So if you're coming in to Sacred City Church, maybe it's your first time. One of the things that we do every single week as a church together is we confess our sins. We say together, we've been enticed by the pull of the world. But we found that that is not satisfying at all. There's a righteousness, there's a joy, there's a a deep satisfaction in the kingdom of righteousness. So together as a church, we do that every single week. Everyone in this room feels that pull. See, this exposes the reality that's true of us and true of Israel, that we are covenant breakers. And really, really what, when we confess our sins, we're confessing that we've broken the covenant with God, that we have not kept the Ten Commandments, we have not kept his ways. But the best part, I think, one of the best parts, there's lots of best parts of this morning, but one of the best parts is hearing the absolution. 
hearing that God acknowledges the fact that we've broken our covenant, that we've walked away, that we've, we've done other things that do not, satis- that do not uh, bring him joy and delight in what we do. But he says, you know what? I forgive you. I see what you've done, and I have grace for you. See, when we understand the reality of our covenant-breaking tendencies, when we see the truth about ourselves, that our hearts are set on evil apart from the grace of God, it makes how God deals with us very scandalous. Think of it like this. It, what, person, what person in their right mind, when engaged to whoever, would follow through on this marriage if that, that their fiancé is a habitual adulterer? if they're constantly stepping out with somebody else, right? What person in their right mind would say, yes, that's the person that I want to commit myself to for the rest of life. There's no stability there. If that person, if if the adulterer is going from person to person to person and not keeping themselves for that one. So you think very, very few of us would do that. I don't think, I don't think anybody would because that person seems unable to hold a commitment. They're, they're unable to keep the covenant that they would vow to make before God and for their witness. And so this is sort of a cut and run situation, right? I see that you are unfaithful and unfaithfulness is bound to continue into the future and so we're gonna be done, we're gonna cut this off, we're gonna end it right here, relationship over. And, and if you think about it, that's the way that God could deal with his people. Vows have been made. God has kept his vows and the people have walked away and stepped out. He could have dealt with us that way and walked away, but he does not do that. God, this is crazy, this is scandalous, that God doubles down and he renews his covenant with the unfaithful people of Israel. That's what verse 10 is talking about. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. And verse 17 through 28, it really gives summary to this covenant that God has already made in the past. So God is renewing the covenant. This is not a new covenant in this way. It's a renewing of the same covenant that God has previously made. So one thing here that you just keep this in mind, that God did not lessen the payoff for the people. He didn't say, I'm going to make you pay for how you stepped out on me, and so I'm, not, I'm going to withhold part of the promised land. I'm going to take away this. I'm going to take away that. I'm going to be sort of here and there with my presence with you. God gives the fullness of the covenant to his people once again. But here's the thing. God isn't naive about this covenant that he's remaking with his people either. He knows as he's making it, he knows that the people still wouldn't be able to live up to it. That would be a matter of hours, days, months, years before the same people found themselves worshiping other gods once again. He knew that they would be inconsistent with their love and their worship, prone to wander, that the people would be hot and cold. But rather than cutting and running, he gives them a second chance, which would be one of many second chances throughout the story. When we go through the Old Testament, you just see story after story after story of a second chance for God's people. Take a look at verse 10. He says, he's making this covenant. He said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people, and I will do marvels such as never been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among, uh, all the people among whom you are, that's so crazy how to say that, all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God's saying, hey guys, look up here. This is gonna be dope, right? What I'm about to do, nobody's ever seen this before. You can't even think of what's about to come. Now, what would compel God to have this sort of favor for his people, right? The people who are unfaithful, unfaithful, that are fickle, that are easier, run away. What would compel God to do such a thing? And the answer to that question is rooted in, in God's nature and character. See, God does this because he is the way he is. In chapter 34, we see the character of God on display as he does what he promised in chapter 33 to Moses, that he would tuck Moses away in the cleft of a rock and his glory would pass by him. Take a look at verse two here. This is when it's about to get real. He says, be ready by the morning and come up 
in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now God is going to do what he had promised to do in Exodus 33, but before God passes by Moses, he has him clear the area. No livestock, no people at the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, the opposite side of the mountain. Why? Because what the, fir- the first thing about God's character that he's communicating is, again, this is a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Exodus, that God is holy, that there's a complete otherness to God, that people cannot tolerate it, that they cannot stand in the presence of God because he is holy and a consuming fire. See, that is the most important character of God, that he is holy. He is not like us. Now, this is the first contrast that God makes in a series of contrasts that are going to be coming up here, that God is holy. And in the the next contrast is represented in his name in verse 5 as God passes by. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. See, we've talked about this before. When Moses was back at the burning bush, God presented himself to Moses as Yahweh or I am. We see this in our Bibles as Lord, capitalized, all caps. And what this name represents, it's not just a name. Right? This is an identity thing. That's, that's how, in, in Hebrew, that's how names work. It's not just a name that, you know, you throw out there and it's a piece of who I, this is a name that goes to the core of my identity and who God is. And what he's saying here is that God is, I am, that he is self-existing, he is sufficient in himself, He's making it clear that he doesn't need anything from anyone. He, God does not need his people to be happy. That God is content and satisfied in himself. That before time and creation, God was complete. God doesn't need his people in order to be God. If, if the people were to be done with, that God would continue to be in God. Psalm 19 says that even if man were not to recognize God as God, the heavens would. Luke 19 says that if, if, the, if men and women did not profess with their mouths, the rocks would surely cry out. That God would be God regardless of his people acknowledging it or not. And by giving his name, God is revealing himself as the God of creation and the God of redemption. See, the first time that God proclaimed his name to Moses, it was to tell him that he would deliver his people from Egypt. And so this is jogging Moses' memory. He's not only the God that created, but he's the God that saves his people. And so he continues on and giving Moses a fuller description of himself. And before I jump into that, I already said one that I I forgot to, to include in this part. But when God said he's a jealous God, his name is jealous, that the Lord is jealous, what does that mean? It's not that he's sort of petty and, and he sees what you have and he wants it in some sort of a selfish, petty sort of way. This is, this is a jealousy that a husband has for his wife, that if, if he sees his wife sort of being lured by another man, he, he desires to have her, he wants, because she belongs to him. So God is this jealous God because, first of all, there's a glory that belongs to him that when we worship other gods is, is being ascribed wrongly to, to lesser gods. But God is jealous in the sense that he, even though he doesn't need his people, he has a desire to be with his people. That he has a strong love for his people. So we see God is holy, that God is eternal and self-sufficient, and God is a jealous God. And verse six continues on. The Lord, the Lord, uh, our God, a gracious, merciful, sorry. The Lord passed before him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
See, these verses right here, this verse might be among the most important words in the New Testament or even the Bible. Right here, these attributes that are laid out are laid out over and over again through the Psalms, through the prophets. Even as we move into the New Testament, we are recalled to these attributes of God. Arthur Pink says that these right here, this verse is the most important as well as the most blessed verses in our passage. Why? Because it clearly communicates what God is like. It highlights the reliable character of God, that this character is not just a a going and coming character that, that God can change like we can change. No, God is an eternal God from everlasting to everlasting, that he has been this way since eternity past and will be into eternity future. And because God's character is the same today as it was then, this is good news for sinners because God's self-description begins with mercy and grace. See, God's mercy, that word mercy, can also be translated as compassion. We heard it in, I think it was maybe the, the profession of faith or, or maybe even the call to worship the psalm, um, that like a father comes to the aid of his ch- crying child. Right, that, that God is attentive and compassionate in the same way. It's Psalm 103. As a father so, shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, this is important for us to understand about the way God is, that he doesn't heap on the blame for people and their suffering, though he could because the, the suffering that has been experienced is typically induced by willingness to sin. He doesn't point their finger and say, well, this is why you feel the way that you do, and so you should just soak it in and, and, and deal with it. No, he, he has sympathy. He has compassion for us in our weak state. God sees Israel as they go through the desert, and he has sympathy for their suffering. And that's one thing that we haven't really talked about a lot, is that this is a tough time for Israel. Right? We, we can easily look back and say, oh, guys, how can you blow this? I mean, God was here in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar, a pillar of cloud by day. How can you really you know, wander away like this if God is so, such a tangible presence among you? But in the wilderness, the people of Israel are actually sufferers. They are sinners, yes, but they are also suffering. There's, there's been heartache that has been imposed upon them from, Israel, from Egypt that they, they still are carrying with them. That the times are certainly tough. It's hard to be out in the wilderness without water. It's hard to be out there without food. And so there is a difficulty to their situation. See, God doesn't just say, you know what, guys? Things are better than than what they were in Egypt, so you need to just suck it up, deal with it, right? Figure it out. See, God is actually attentive and aware of their suffering And he has a desire to do something about it. And I think that this is a helpful thing to keep in mind when you are in a season of suffering yourself, when you're facing those tough times. See, God's posture toward you is not a condemning posture if you're in Christ. See, God's posture toward you is one of mercy and compassion, that he is sympathetic to our weaknesses. Arthur Pink suggests that God's mercy is the fount from which all other attributes flow. That right here, this mercy piece of who God is and how he feels towards his children produces more to come. And that's where we see that God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, for God to be gracious means that he bestows undeserved favor upon his people. Right? The people don't deserve to be in cahoots with God. But he is giving them an undeserved favor. See, Arthur Pink, again, man, I have a lot of pink quotes today. Grace is not for anything in man or from him, but solely because of God's own kindness. See, this means that, that Israel didn't earn God's favor before he delivered them from Egypt that his rescue, his grace was purely on account of God and his character. And so when we get an accurate perspective of grace, that it comes from God, not because of anything that we've done to earn it or to make ourselves worthy of receiving it, but it comes purely upon his undeserved kindness, 
we have a we develop this right understanding that we deserve nothing. Well, to be theologically accurate, we deserve misery and sin and punishment and, and, and all of the effects that weigh us down because of our willingness to turn away from God. See, what we deserve, what we actually deserve is the grave. And so when we think in those terms of what we actually deserve and what God mercifully and graciously gives us, we see that anything above the grave is grace. And God has a lot of grace for his people. You can see it in common grace, how we can enjoy this nice weather together. We don't deserve this. You can see this in the common grace of a good book or a good movie, of a, of a good friend, but you see this even more specific, even more in a, in a grand capacity in God's special grace toward his people to redeem them and save them from their sins. God's grace, the fullness of it, is revealed through the free gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus. But there's more to who God is and what he's like. God deals with sinners. He does so in a slow to, ang- he's slow to anger and he's long-suffering in doing so. See, what this does, it points us to his God's patience for us or with us. He's not capricious or volatile. He doesn't just fly off the handle. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't react or overreact. His anger, because God does have anger, He tells us that there are things that anger him, but his anger is slow building. It's always precise. John McKay says this, to be slow to anger acknowledges that the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation even when it is in rebellion against him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return to repentance but he is not forgetful and he will not condone sin. See that there's a, a long suffering, there's a patient nature with God and, and when you see what we're like, when you see what Israel's like, it, it makes sense, it wouldn't work if he weren't. And the reason for this long suffering is that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See this is, this, those five words or whatever it is are so beautiful to me because it speaks of the consistency and the volume of which God loves his people. See, God's love for his people is constantly flowing in mass amounts. It is an abundant love that is always coming at you. I love how there's a hymn called The Love of God. I love this lyric, this verse. I'm gonna read it because it's so good. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. See, this abundant, steadfast love that God has for his people, it is incredibly profound. This is a covenant love that he has, that it's steadfast in the sense that it's unveering, unwavering, and abundant and overflowing. That while God is unfaithful, his love still comes at us because it is steadfast, and it still comes at us at the same volume as if we were doing what is right in his sight. That is crazy. That the love of God flows in massive amounts all the time. Verse seven goes on, keeping the steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now this shows us that God is a forgiving God. He's forgiving to his wayward children who seek forgiveness out through faith and repentance. Now this Hebrew word forgiveness means to lift or to carry. This gives us a clear picture of what it means to forgive, that when God gives forgiveness to his people, he is lifting, he is removing this burden of guilt that his people feel. 
And he says, I, I, I forgive your iniquities, your transgressions, and your sins. Now, this seems redundant, right? Repetitive. It's the same. Transgressions, um, iniquities, and sins seems to be synonymous for one another. And what this does, it shows us that how thorough God's forgiveness is no matter what the sinner has done. See, this is why Martin Luther could say to us, he could say, sin boldly and not be a heretic because of the, or the intensity of God's forgiveness. That regardless of what we've done in our life, there's forgiveness for even the foulest of sinners. But there's also a hard side to this. In, in the second part of, of verse seven, take a look. Keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, that, that there is still guilt for those who do not turn back to God, repent of their sin, that there's a still a guilt, there's a sin that rests upon them, that while God is forgiving, he is also just, that he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and leave it undealt with. See, I think for modern Christians, there's this pull to sort of dismiss the just nature of God. It's, it's too hard to, to swallow. I think that God would punish sinners. And so they say, oh, for, forgiveness for all. But here's the thing. With that mentality, if God isn't just in that way, and we say forgiveness for all, then what's to stop an unjust God from coming back and bringing punishment again. See, we need God's justice to be confident that our sins have been forgiven. We have to know that God is just and he carries out and executes justice upon a substitute, namely Jesus Christ. See, God lays out who he is, what he's like, what we see is God is the God that unfaithful people like us, like Israel, needs. No other God will suffice because where we are sinful, God has mercy, grace, and forgiveness for us. Where we are unfaithful, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so the only way that the relationship between God and people can work is if God is the way that he is, exactly as he laid out in verses six and seven. That's the only way that this relationship between God and us will work. See, if it were not for God's character being what it is, there would be no hope for people that would be left in sin. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no steadfast, abundant love to call upon. We would be stuck in the folly of our sin. So it's either God says he, God, either God is who he says he is or we have no hope for a future with him. See, what, that, what I said earlier, our, our character about us, the, the sinful pull of our heart tells us that we're always only five minutes away from complete moral failure. God's character tells us that we are just an instant away from the grace of God. Moses sees what God is like and the only appropriate thing, the only appropriate response happens here in verse eight. And Moses quickly bowed his head and turned toward the earth and worshiped. See, with a right understanding of yourself and a, and a glimpse of God, you, this will be your response too. That you become aware of your unworthiness while simultaneously being overwhelmed by God's glory and splendor. And what this does, this produces a deep humility because it shows us two truths. The first truth that I'm worse than I ever thought I was. The second truth is God is far more gracious, far more loving, far more patient than I could have ever hoped. So this produces a humility. It, folks are, are, it shifts our focus from, from myself and my sin and, and shifts it to God and what he's like and what he has for me.
There's a a freedom of self-forgetfulness when we see God for who he is. We see this even with Moses. And when he comes off the mountain in verse 29, he doesn't know his face is shining. Somebody's gotta tell him, hey, bro, your face be lit. There's a self-forgetfulness that we have when we come in the glory of God and we see God for who he is. See, Moses sees God for who he is and he responds in worship, but his worship leads him to supplication. Look at verse nine. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. See, that was one of the things that God was going to pull away from his people, that he was going to pull himself away from his people. But Moses is praying, please come be in the midst of us, for we're stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is a bold prayer. Moses If you just trace these prayers that Moses had, he is fearless when it comes to prayer. Because he's not appealing to the goodness or the the deservingness of his people, he's appealing on behalf of God's character and what God is like. He asks for big things because he knows God is a big God that's full of grace and love for his people. And so he asks, come back to us, be with us, let us be your inheritance, let us be your people like you had promised, and God answers yes. And we know that because God remakes this covenant with his people again, right? Go back to verses 10 through 28. We're not going to read all that, but God says, yes, I will be your God, you will be my people. And so Moses goes back down with good news, and he goes back down to the camp with these new tablets, with the same law that has been written on them. Right, it's, the, it's a sign that the covenant is on again, right? This covenant has been reestablished. And this time there's no freak out because the people are waiting to hear from God. They have seen what God is like. They've seen his steadfast love, his grace for them, his mercy. But this time when Moses comes down, there's something different. Verse, skip ahead to verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and the other people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. See, in seeing God's glory, Moses' face was now shining. It was, there was a radiation of God's glory now portrayed in the face of Moses. It's a, it's a, a souvenir of being in God's presence. It's a, it's a proof that, that Moses had seen the glory of God, and now it's not that Moses was glorious in himself, but, but that glory reflected off of him. See, whenever people see God's glory, there is a tr- transformative aspect to it. It's impossible to see God's glory and not be changed by it. And I'm not just talking like a shiny face. I don't know anybody that's got a shiny face. But the transformative nature of, of God's glory happens here in our hearts, that from our hearts shines forth a light. Psalm 34 actually says that when they looked to him, their faces were radiant. Right? This isn't just a visual change, a heart change. And this transformation, this transformation should be very assuring to us, right, to know that I've seen, I know that I have encountered God in some capacity in that there is fruit in my life, that I've been changed, that my heart no longer completely desires what the world has to offer, but there's this desire to pursue God and righteousness, kingdom of God. So this transformation is a means of assurance, but, but at the same time, there becomes, there's, there's moments where we actually don't realize the change that's happened in our life. That is why it's so important to be in a missional community. You need people in your life, not only confronting you in your sin, but to say, hey, brother, I see how God has worked in your life. I see how God has taken you and he's moved you from one degree of glory to the next. That should be a means of encouragement for us as we live in community together. See, Moses didn't see it. He didn't realize what was going on. 
So we might need people speaking into our lives to show that to us as well. But in Moses' situation, the glory was too overwhelming for the people, that they were actually afraid. So Moses had to cover it up. Look at verses 32. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken to him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. Now, why would Moses have to cover up? Because they're afraid, because the glory is too much for them. Arthur Pink, man, a lot of Arthur Pink quotes. Arthur Pink said that because the very glory that shone upon his face searched their hearts and consciences, right? So as, as Moses' face shined forth, it sort of penetrated their hearts, revealed something about them. Being what they were, sinners and unable of themselves to meet even the smallest requirements of the covenant, which had now been re-inaugurated, See, this, this glory that Moses had on his face showed the, the, their natural state, the state of their heart. It was a fearful thing for them because once again, this covenant that God had remade with his people, it was the same covenant. It still depended upon their effort to put forth and to hold their end of the deal. So Moses, the glory hid it, but this glory was also fading 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that Moses not only hid his face because the people couldn't take it initially, but because as more time progressed, as Moses was with his people more and with God, less the glory, the, the, the shining of his face decreased in intensity. That Moses had to go and be recharged with God in verse 35. And when he would go in there, his face would shine again. He'd show it, prove it to the people, and then cover it up so they wouldn't see that the glory was fading. See, the more time Moses spent around sinful people, the more the glory faded. It was this sort of the second law of thermodynamics. When you remove something from the heat source, it naturally diminishes in temperature. There you go, all you science people. And so this covenant was remade. But what happens here? Second chance after second chance proved that God's people were incapable of holding up their end of this covenant. See, that showed that they were not actually worthy of glory. It proved their condemnation. All these rules just showed where they they were insufficient. It showed that they were not good enough for God. But because God is the way that he is, his, his character is dependable and eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Because God is the way that he is, after decades of renewing covenants, God made a new covenant. One that, not did, the one that didn't depend on people's ability to get it right. One that didn't depend on people's ability to, to, to keep to the law. One that rested entirely, entirely upon God's character. And that character was personified in the person and work of Jesus. See, if in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul explains the difference between the covenants of Exodus and this new covenant that God has made in Christ, right? That, that even though the covenant that God made with, with his people in Exodus was glorious, Moses' face was shining, who saw the glory of God even in his commandments is there. But it does not compare to this glory that surpasses it in Christ. See, this covenant that God remade in Exodus 34 did not bring life, but it brought condemnation and death. It was meant to bring life, but the people were unable to keep their end. See, it showed that the people were insufficient, but by God, through Christ, they have been made sufficient for the new covenant. Look at, if you want to skip ahead to to 2 Corinthians 3, we're we're going to wrap it up just real quickly here with this. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in, our, in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Right? For the letter, he's speaking of the Ten Commandments. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, Jesus is the second, this new covenant. 
Jesus demonstrated God's justice and mercy towards sinner in dying for the cross. God's justice in that the sinners of the world have been punished. Their sin has been, been placed upon one man, but his mercy, that it, it didn't have to be us, that Jesus stood in our place. So that Jesus was perfect in the, all of the places that we failed. Where we were unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. And that we are credited with his righteousness. And so being forgiven of our sins and being credited with Christ's righteousness, we are now sufficient, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done for us. See, Paul says what happens in Exodus 34 is glorious in re-giving the law, but it is a ministry of death. But the new covenant in Christ is the ministry of righteousness, which is far superior. Verse seven says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in the case that what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that which surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. See, this new covenant shows us a greater picture of God's glory, that we were sinners, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And God provides what we are incapable of doing in our own strength. And as we see what God has done for us in Christ, we become participants in this glory. We don't just get to see the glory on someone else. We get to participate in the glory ourselves. And it's not an unfading glory. It doesn't just maintain in glory. It's an intensifying glory. See, where Moses' face would diminish and and decrescendo in intensity, this intensity that we, the light that shines into our hearts, that, that bears witness into our own hearts, shines forth in a greater capacity day by day as we look upon Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.18 says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. See, as a result of this new covenant, Paul says that we have a hope. Back in verse 12, he says that we have a hope. And it's not based upon our own doing. It's not based upon our ability to keep the law, but it's based upon God's character and his desire to keep his law for his people. And this is a hope so strong that we are bold. There's a boldness as we cling to Christ that we can have. That no matter how unfaithful or grievous our sins are, no matter how inconsistent our faith might be, we can appeal to God's manifest character in the person and work of Christ and find redemption and righteousness. See, being a Christian is not about trying harder to be a good person. If you say you're trying to be a Christian, you don't understand it. See, being a Christian is about holding on to Christ. And pointing, my righteousness is not in what I do, in what I try to do in my life. My righteousness is found in Christ, and so I point to him. See, if the foundation of your hope is on anything other than Christ, then your hope will crumble underneath the pressures of your failure. But if your foundation of your hope is in God and his character and the manifest character of Jesus Christ, you can abound in hope You can be confident in what God has done. And so there's no wondering, oh, is God going to be hot or cold with me today? You don't have to wonder because you know, I know that God is going to pour out his steadfast, abounding love on me regardless of what I do for him or don't do for him. That's the kind of God he is. And I know that because he sent his son to die in my place and to credit me with his righteousness. See, if you are a sinner, which is everyone here in this room. The only way to get out from underneath your sin and to be worthy of God is to see that God is who he is and what he has done for you in Christ. So you can never be good enough, but Christ has been good enough for you. See, that God loved me at my worst 
and, and my, at my best, what I thought was my best, really isn't all that great when I put it and contrast it with what Christ has done for me. And so because of this, we have a hope that we will be with Christ in glory for eternity, which begins right now as we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, this right here, the, this is the marvels that God was talking about. This is the work of the Lord. This is the awesome thing that God was preparing for his people, even in Exodus 34. See, that's what we have to look forward to. So today I want to urge you, whether this is your first time repenting and turning toward Christ or if this is the millionth time, that you would do so. That you would turn and see God for who he is. That you would see your, the, the condition of your heart, your need for a Savior, and you would see how God supplied that in his mercy and grace toward you in Christ. That you would repent of your sin, right? The places where we have willfully wandered away from God and that we would repent even of our self-righteousness, the places that we have, where we are wrongly convinced that, that our right standing with God is based upon my good works, and you would cling to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you that you're a God. You are a God that we could not even dream up that you're exactly what we need, and that is why you satisfy our deepest desires and our longings. And I pray this morning, Father, as we come to the table, that you would do that. You would satisfy us as we take the blood and the body of Christ, and we consume it, and it comes in us, and it would transform us from the inside out. Father, I'm thankful for your son and what you've done, how you give us assurance in him based upon your character and not our own good works. Would you help us to cling to Christ today, the rest of this week, and forevermore? It's his name we pray. Amen.